Welcome to the Grace Reformed Church podcast. This week, Pastor Joe is speaking from Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. Now, we're going to dive into our uh, message for today, which is from Revelations 2, uh, verse 1 to 7. If you have a Bible at home, open it up with me and follow along, underline, make notes, let get stuck into the Word of God. Let me commit this to the Lord in prayer. Father God, as we now open your word and we read from it and we, we digest it and we, we eat it to feed our souls, we pray that it would nourish us on the inside and that it would be a light for our feet, for our, a lamp for our path. We pray that in Jesus' name. And we can all agree and say, Amen. When I was um, thinking about the new series to do... Um, for our church because we've kind of wrapped up the ones we've done before last week we had the combined service and I was praying about what to do and, and a strong impression came into mind to do the seven letters that Jesus wrote to the seven churches and I know that through that God will speak to our church as well and to us as church people because God's word is timeless and um, I stole this title from another pastor that I follow on YouTube um, I just love the way it kind of conveys this idea of a letter written to a specific people. Dear Ephesus, I've written you a letter. Now, if you're my age, then you've got no problem thinking what it's like to write and post a letter or waiting to receive a letter. I think the current generation, the internet generation, um, wouldn't fully grasp the, the uh, heart and the patience needed to write and post letters as we did in our days when we were younger. My wife and I, at one point, um, we were studying and I was in one province in South Africa in Pretoria and she was way down in Wellington and Cape Town and we didn't have mobile phones, there wasn't internet back then, but we could write letters and we'd write letters to each other and you know, you'd write a letter and post it away and she'd receive it that side and then she'd write a letter back to me. So from the time I sent a letter to her to the time that I got the letter back would sometimes be 10 days, 2 weeks, depending on how fast the post was uh, around that time. Um, but that was letter writing. You, you had someone in mind, you loved for them, you cared for them, and you took the time to let them know how you're feeling. Do you remember that when you were younger and your... Uh, you know, the love of your life wrote you letters and you, you got them and they had the stamp and you know the address and the back was from them and maybe they drew a little love heart and you, you know, I could always smell uh, you know, the, the letters that still sent me and there was a, like a, a perfume on it. And I just loved receiving letters from her. Now Jesus writes to seven churches in uh, Revelations 2 and 3. And um, the letters, even though it's written to churches way back then, you know, the late first century, it's meant to speak to all churches throughout all the ages, even to us. That's why it's recorded in the Bible. If God had intended for a letter to just remain something for a specific people back then and nothing else, it would not have been recorded in our Bibles. It's there so that it could speak to us, that God could use it to speak to us even today. Now, we're going to do our reading, and um, it's a short passage, only seven verses. I'll uh, do, do it in three main blocks, and then I'll expand on it for a little bit. 
So um, it starts off by saying for the first letter, to whom is it written? Well, it says to the angel of the church in Ephesus right Now, just before we go on, and um, I just realized I'm not clicking away and my wife's doing it. Thank you, Cecile. A bit of unprepared readiness from your side. Um, but so the, the addressee is this church in Ephesus. Now, a little side note, if you want to read more about this church, they mentioned in other places in the New Testament as well. In Acts 19, it speaks of how Paul went there and there was a riot because of his preaching. But then you also have Paul's letter to the church, which is the book of Ephesians. So there's a, you know, a whole book of Paul, and then you have, of course, what Jesus wrote to the church of Ephesus. So there's a lot mentioned about them in our Bibles. But now it says, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars <clears throat> in his right hand and walk among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. So that is a good scorecard. Now if they did the NCD church survey, kind of like we've done in the past, and then you measure these eight health bars of the church, then in a lot of areas, they would have scored really well. You would have think, well, let's stop there. This church is doing well. They, they, they're going strong. But in verse 4, we see this word there, yet. Or, you know, the word but. <laughs> Did you write it when someone speaks to you and they say, but this. Or the Bible language of yet. So there's a something else. Jesus says to this church, you've done well in a lot of areas. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So we see in that, that there's a, this church has, a, you know, as I said, a good score card. But Jesus is ensuring that they realize, even though you have strengths, you have a lot of things that are going well for you, it does not justify being lackluster or average when it comes to your spiritual temperature. In a way, I'm th if I compare that to a marriage, if, if I say, you know, we've got a really good marriage because we go on holidays, and we respect each other and my wife makes me food and you know I provide and, and we list all these things about our good marriage but I don't love her from the heart then those things you know, really doesn't add up enough it's it's fine to have the outside markers of a good marriage but more important is that I love her from my heart and that she loves me. And love is not that feeling love. It's agape. It's the love that has compassion and is loyal and is committed and is respectful. The way God intended it to be. That's most important. The first love that I... And first love doesn't mean, you know, in the romantic sense that you were the first one I loved. It's, it's deeper. It means that you are the first of all my priorities. 
So to my wife, there's no one else, humanly speaking, that I'm to love more than her. And she to me. Now, spiritually, that's the same thing. God is to be our first love. That's why he's saying to this church, you're doing a lot of good things well, but you don't love me first. I'm not the number one in your life. And he says, it used to be like that, but it's not like that anymore. And then there's this command, fix it. Fix it. And if I can just echo back to the marriage thing. Now, I said, if you have the outside markers of a good marriage, but you don't love your spouse, fix it. That's what God would say to us. That's what He would command us, to fix our relationships so that we can honor Him also in that way. And if spiritually we are cool and cold towards God, then the command is fix that. Make it right. And verse 7 then says, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's this immense blessing that goes beyond our life on earth. That's saying that you know, there's reward beyond life on earth that is coming our way if we are in Christ and we remain faithful to Him and love Him with our lives. Now here's a little map on the screen for you. <clears throat> this map, by the way, is one that someone in our church painted for me um, with a computer uh, art. And that was Inalia Lowe. It's part of our, you know, the Re Revelation project. That's my hobby that I've been working on for many years now and still working on it. And um, she was kind enough to make a map that I can use that doesn't have copyright on it. But on this map, you can see um, the seven stars is representing the seven churches of this book of Revelation. And the first one there is the church of Ephesus. It was kind of like at a... A port city at the this where a river mouth met the sea, and just off the coast of Ephesus was a little island, Patmos, and that's where John, who used to reside in Ephesus, he was banished from there because of he's a troublemaker and he's, he he wouldn't bow the knee to to worship idols and worship Caesar, so he was banished to this isle of Patmos, and there on Patmos as a prisoner. Jesus appeared to him in his prison place and wrote, uh, wrote, told him to write these letters to encourage the churches. Now the churches around that time, that's late first century, they were having it tough. There was a lot of persecution happening. But Jesus is writing to them all. And specifically today, the church of Ephesus is the one we are looking at. Now, that was called uh, Minor Asia back then. But today, that's Turkey. Just you know, for those of you wondering, this is the northern part of Africa. There's the Middle East, Israel. That's Turkey. And that's Greece over there. And, and this is Cyprus. Um, yeah, so just to get a bit of an idea. So if you could, in future, fly to other countries, because we can't do that at the moment. But something I'd love to have on my bucket list, to one day go and visit these places. And you can go visit them. Of course, if you went there now, to the uh, ruins of the city of Ephesus, you could visit things like the tomb of Mary, the mother of Jesus. Now you might be wondering, well, why is her tomb in modern-day Turkey? Shouldn't her tomb be back in, um, 
Jerusalem or Israel. Well, that's quite intriguing because John, we know from history that John was based there in Ephesus. That's where he, he did his final work. That's where John also died. John was the apostle that took Mary in, kind of adopted her, you could say, um, to care for her because Jesus had instructed him to. When Jesus was on the cross, he looked down at John and he said, John, there is your mother. Mary, there is your son. Jesus, as the oldest brother, was responsible to care for his, his mother, who was a widow, we presume at that stage. So it was for him to care for her in her old age. But now, as Jesus was uh, going to the cross and preparing to die, he arranged care for his mother. And then he said, John, you are to care for my mom. Mom, you are now going to receive care from John the Apostle. And so it is that Mary then went with John to Asia, to uh, Ephesus, and you can go and visit the tomb of Mary. There's also a site where you can visit the, um, the burial site of John, St. John, and um, it just connects us to history. I just find it so fascinating when I think that it's real history, and you can go and walk in those ancient places and see the ancient ruins and imagine the disciples walking there. Imagine people walking back then. And feel the sense of connection to the history. I'm not going to going to go into it too much, but just one more slide that I'll highlight from that place. It's, if you can Google search images for Ephesus, you'll be amazed at the, the beautiful ruins and how many there are. Because the, the city Ephesus, the modern day, has moved away from the ancient um, site at the port, but it's still there, and the ruins are being kept up and uh, people can go visit it and there's a great um, myriad of things that you know, that's uh, was the ancient library and I think through here was the marketplace and you, you can go investigate the rich history of this ancient city called Ephesus for instance just one thing I'll highlight is that in that city was a lot of idol worship that happened there idol worship in the sense of you know man-made um, idols carved from stone or from made from bronze or copper or, or maybe gold poured over it and a lot of temples to worship idols but one of the things that was prominent in Ephesus was the worship of Caesar because Caesar had made declared himself God that's why people refer to him as Lord Caesar and when, if you wanted to enter into the marketplace you go through these gates and then you um, take uh, incense and you had to throw incense onto a, 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 like a fire and then you would say Caesar is Lord and then you'd enter into the marketplace. And you could just think how the Christians in those days must have felt pressure to, well, let me just do it and get in there or to not do it. You know, the, the, the scolding they'd receive from people glaring at them and not approving of them and their rebellious ways. And that is why in the end this persecution broke out against Christians because they would not worship idols. They would not worship a man called Caesar who declared himself God. There is one God only and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I've made a pre-set post that's going to go live on Facebook today at 11.45. And this is something I want to highly recommend you watch if you're interested in these kind of things about the background of the city of Ephesus. It's by um, Dr. Joseph Stowell from the Daily Bread Ministry.
And um, so 11.45, this link is going to go live on our church Facebook page. And it's a 25-minute clip. It is brilliant. You will love it. You listen to it. You, you can't stop watching because it keeps it so interesting. And it moves at such a pace. You blink your eyes and the 25 minutes is over. But he goes into the historical setting. And you get a real feel for what it must have been like for the churches back then. Back to our passage. I want to highlight something from the passage today. We see here, uh, it says in verse 1, remember where it says that uh, Jesus writes and he says, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walk among the seven golden lampstands. Now that's very significant imagery. The seven stars in his right hand speaks of the authority Christ had as the captain of the armies of God, the Lord of hosts. He has authority. You know, a king has a scepter in his right hand, speaks of his authority to reign. And here we see Christ has the seven stars, the angels that is under his authority. You can cross-reference that with um, passages like Revelations 12.4, where it says the dragon, Satan, his tail swept a third of the stars from heaven, implying that the, the, the third of the angels fell with Satan. This speaks to us of Christ's authority, the fact that He is over all the angels. You might remember Matthew 26, 53, where Jesus was on the cross and people said, If you're God, why don't you come down from there? And He said, Do you, uh, um, or rather, this was where, uh, not when He was on the cross, this was when Peter chopped off a guy's ear. Remember when they wanted to come and take Jesus captive? And Peter chopped off a guy's ear and Jesus said to Peter, Put away your sword. Do you not... Do you not realize that I can call on my Father and He will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And, you know, Revelations 19, etc., etc. There's so many passages that speaks of uh, Jesus as the authority of um, the leader of the armies of heaven. And that is portrayed in this as well. And I believe that Jesus was showing us His authority because for the churches back then, Caesar and the Roman army must have seemed threatening and very powerful. But now Jesus is showing them that no matter the things of this world, I have ultimate power. Some men might have control of worldly, earthly armies. Mere human beings behind a sword or a gun. But Jesus is Lord of the armies of heaven, the angels. He then says, that he walks between seven golden lampstands. And that's a beautiful picture for us of the seven churches. Also of the Holy Spirit in the churches. Because a, a lampstand needs oil to burn fire, to light up a place. And the oil is always representative of the Holy Spirit. The uh, Word of God is the lamp for our feet, we know that. But then the lampstand, the container, is the churches. There's seven churches. Seven lampstands, seven letters, and Jesus dwells in the midst of them, walks among them. Also showing us, yeah, Jesus said, if two or three of you meet in my name, I'm in your midst. A church is when two or three or more gather together. It's not the bricks. Bricks is important and it's very helpful. But the church, with or without the brick, meet together in his name and he says, I am there. I am in your midst. And he walks between the churches. And uh, I have to show you this. This is one of the props that was also made for us for our Revelation project. 
and this stain for you made this for me just a beautiful full-size lampstand we, we don't know what exactly it looked like this is an artist design but um, you know Christ walks between seven lampstands representing him walking between the churches cross-reference this fact that the, the lampstand represents the church or the Spirit of God in the church because it says there in verse 4 and 5 of this chapter that if this church does not fix the coolness of their spirituality, if they don't fix how they've drifted away from God, he says, I'll remove your lampstand. I'll remove my spirit from your midst. I'll remove my life from your gatherings. And the church will become but an empty shell. And that's important that we, we heed this warning from God to churches. And remember, churches is not um, saying a, a specific person only. It's speaking to the, the people together, what we represent together as a congregation. And here it says that um, the people have lost their first love. One scholar actually said that this church of Ephesus, um, by this time, would have had a third generation that is leading the church, that is prominent. So you know there was the fathers, the grandfathers of the church, and then their children, and then the fathers of the church, and mothers, and then their children, and that's why we talk of you know, the third generation down. And they had not loved God as much as the original founders of the church. And Jesus is warning the church, fix that first love issue, so I don't remove my lamp from your midst. And it's a warning even today for many churches. And I'm going to give you examples in a moment of where churches have not done that. Where they've drifted. And now I believe God by His Spirit and His Word would warn churches. He'd warn churches. But we always have two voices we listen to. There's the voice of God, which at times is uncomfortable and confronting. And then there's the voice of the world, of humanity. The, the voice of... Uh, um, you know, uh, People versus that of God. And the pressure we feel from the world and people to conform to their standards rather than to conform ourselves to God's standards. In the, the UK, for instance, and in many other countries, maybe possibly you, you could cite examples here in uh, Australia as well, where churches had this illusion that if we um, you know, make sin less offensive to people, you know, we don't call it out and we change the commands of God, you know, like the one about marriage, that marriage can now be anything. And, uh, you know, if people are in sinful relationships, but for example, not meaning to pick on one sin only, but, you know, the, what has been prevalent was that people in same-sex marriages, you know, could now become pastors as well, even though the Bible is clear that God condemns such a relationship. And churches thought if we do those things, then we're going to have packed churches because, you know, the world that has been staying away because they didn't like us talking about sin, they're going to flood in through the doors. But the opposite happened. Those churches became empty, vacant, dead because God's life had been removed. God's spirit, His lamb was removed from those churches. And it could be for a lot of reasons. But here it is summarized as loving God first, loving Him the most. That should be our collective position as a congregation. Here's some examples. Here's a church in Spain that is now a skateboard part. And I'll tell you what, I had to choose what photo 
to put up here because there are so many, literally hundreds of photos of churches in Europe and in England, some in America, that have now been revamped into something else. Some are now bars, others are art studios, massage parlors, music recording studios, even people that are making it their personal homes and putting in floors and rooms and, and you know, living quarters inside. Churches are buildings are being revamped into lots of other things because that church building that used to host a gathering of the church people died. It you know, withered out, dried out. And I believe it's a picture of when God removes His land, when He removes His Spirit, that a shell is left. The bricks and mortar are left, but God removed His Spirit and the people drifted away. And this, see what it says about this church. Um, and this is not my words, it's the, under the, the, the photo heading there's this um, words. Pay worship to the skate gods in Kaos Temple, an abandoned church turned skate park. And see how they painted the ceilings uh, from what used to be Christian imagery. is now just lots of colors and naked woman. And I've kind of I put some uh, white blocks in just to make it uh, kosher for church. But... It's been turned into something completely different from what it was. And I wonder what the generations before, 100 years back, that used to meet there and worship God, what they would think of what has happened to their church. And I'm not fixated on the building, but that building represented a gathering of people. Here's one more, one more I want to show you. And this is in America. Um, it's the same story. It says this is Nike, you know, the shoe company, Nike trans transformed the 163-year-old church into a basketball court. This is uh, located in Chicago and was closed due to low attendance. And then, you know, now it's this uh, sports place and uh, it says there uh, in the article, to attend this amazing basketball church, you have to register and this can be done every Sunday starting from 12 p.m. So, I thought that maybe there's a church still meeting in there. They didn't say that. It just said it's all about sports. And I was thinking, you know, maybe this is not that bad. Because an empty church that's just falling apart and, you know, cobwebs and dust on the floor and no maintenance, that's worse. At least now it has a bit of purpose. And I couldn't help think of those words where Jesus says, I'd rather you be cold or hot than be lukewarm. Because if you're lukewarm, I'll, I'll just spit you out of my mouth. Um, you know, it's a church that doesn't meet anymore, but at least it has some purpose. So that's probably, you know, in a worst case scenario, it's the best use of a bad situation. But thinking about buildings, and uh, that's going to touch on our church, you know, because we don't have our own building. Yes, churches that are empty, because uh, they, you know, people aren't attending, and we're a church that have got a lot of people, but we don't have our own building, and we rent, and I'm going to touch a little bit on that today. If I realized, looking at these things, that churches who have buildings would need to think that good stewardship of resources includes the use of the building God gives them. Underline, the church is the people. But the resources God gives a church, you know, like finances, the staff you have, the leaders you have, and the building you have, needs to be 
used in ways that glorify God and we need to be good stewards of it because if you have a huge building that costs you know two million or three million or ten million or whatever churches cost nowadays if you have a building and the only time that big expensive building is used is on a Sunday morning that is I think uh, that's a sin that is a misuse of a resource that God has given in a way, we've got the opposite happening in, in the case of our church because we um, use ECU's building. In the week, it gets used for the university students for lectures. And in Sunday mornings, we use it for church. Some churches meet at schools and it's, you know, the, the, the halls they rent is used for the school in the week and Sunday mornings for the church. And that's a proper use of a resource. And I believe that is more God-honoring than having a building that is empty most of the week. So if the Lord allows our church in future, soon, later, to have our own building. And that's one of the things that I believe would be God-honoring to make sure that whatever building a church has, if we get in that position, that we multi-purpose it so that it's used and maximized and doesn't st stand vacant for the week because we're paying for a vacant building. We don't want to be in that position. Um, I know some churches around here uh, have buildings and they run after school care and kids clubs and others do sports. And here's a picture of a church that has a basketball arena trying to multipurpose what God has given them. But let me highlight that a church is made up of living stones. And 1 Peter 2.5 says it, that we people, we're living stones being built up into a spiritual house. Because church, ecclesia means a gathering of people. So if people come together at your home as a small group, or you invite another family over to watch the service with, with you at your home, that's church. It's a gathering of people. Um, we heard that uh, there's a, a group of friends from our church that are meeting together today because they decided they want to watch a TV series together. But they're going to get together at someone's house, watch church together. Then they're going to have lunch together. And then together, see this word together, they're going to watch this uh, a TV series. But that's church. That's the church. Church is when people come together in the name of God and it's God's people gathering. That is the church. And whether it's at a home, which is brick and mortar, or in the park under a roof that's been built, or tent you put up, or ECU, or your own place. That's the tool. That's the vehicle. But the church is meeting in the church building. Two cartoons for you. And folks, I'm nearly done. I kind of like what this one says. The building is closed, but the church is open. Isn't that true? That's what we experience in this time of the, this isolation, which hopefully is now winding to a close. That the church is publicly has been closed, but... The church has always been open and we've been able to continue meeting together, be it in different ways. Another cartoon um, drawing says, where the church is. And see what this picture shows? It's here, it's here, it's there, and 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 all over the place. That's the church. Church is not restricted to one building and one time slot in the week. Church is anywhere that God's people meet together. In our case... We've got this um, three pictures, three words that summarizes what our stated church strategy is to win people, to build people, and to send people. 
and see, and the, I need to make better pictures because they're really small and when you blow them up like this, it's a bit pixelated. But can you see the first one is two hands from inside a room where the light is on, reaching out into a hand on the outside where it's dark and inviting that person in. That is what it's about. It includes a gathering place, a building, a home, but inviting someone in. Then the building one is people lifting each other up, making one another stronger, building each other up. The third one is touching the world around us. That's what we want to be as a church. We believe that's three markers that keep us um, accountable to you know, a, a direction we want to be in, the, the values we want to uphold, and that would honor God and the calling we have to advance His kingdom, to win, build, and send. And I just want to say about this building thing. Um, I'm going to nearly close the, the message, but a lot of people have been... Uh, asking about when will we be meeting again as a church. It's, um, we're looking into it. We're not just like sitting here on the side and doing nothing about it. We really are looking into it. And we've made inquiries to the C3 church about renting their place for um, six months. And we offered them a certain amount that we thought would be safe for us. It's more than, you know, it's double what we pay at uh, ECU from three and a half to seven thousand dollars a month plus but more for electricity. But we said if we do that for six months, it wouldn't break the church if that, you know, if our giving was not up to the amount needed. Um, but they want more money than that and they want a two-year commitment. So it's like back to the drawing board. What do we do? What do we do? Um, to buy the building, we'd need to go back to where we were before this crisis, raise about three hundred to $4,000 as a deposit to get a loan which would need to service by about 10 grand a month, and that's without the upkeep of that building. So moving into C3, it, it, whether we rent it or whether we buy it, is a three-fold jump in our current cost. I thought initially our, our cost for ECU was five grand a month, but when I looked at the numbers more detailed, um, I'd rounded it, it up significantly. It's about three and a half a month. So we go from three and a half a month to 10 11-ish. Um, that's besides the $400,000 we need to raise to put a deposit down. Now, if God so moves and God so clearly leads and you know, by some miracle we get a big chunk of money to be able to do that, then we'd love to pursue it. But that's not what we are seeing today. Our income at church is healthy and we want to keep it that way because the income is healthy compared to our expenditures. Doesn't you know healthy income and you bump up massive expenditures could get us into trouble and a lot of stress, and then we don't want to damage our church, so we're not chasing that right now. Um, ECU, we uh, uh, have been talking to them. They also adjusting according to the information the government gives them, and the state government. Uh, at, at the moment, a hundred people can meet in a building. That's the current restriction. I'm hoping that in the next week or two or three, you know, maybe a month from now, that'll be bumped up to more people, maybe 200, 300. We hope so. Um, but we made inquiries from ECU, and they said they're going to get back to us next week about uh, the cap on numbers. If it's the 100 number, we could work with that. It would mean we book the church building for two hours. Well, not two hours. It was one service is about what's it, uh, two and a half hours of use, but we double the time. 
and we'd have people come to one of two services. But even then, we couldn't fit the whole church because we had about 360 people attend church on a Sunday. But if you take the children out, who could go straight to a different room, we're about going to be about 220 to 40 to 60 adults and high schoolers on a Sunday. So it's still more than what two services of 100 each would give us. So that's what we're wrestling with. How do we work around it? How do we, how do we fit our church into a building, be it an ECU or somewhere else? Um, so please pray for us in this regard. Pray for us as a church council that um, that God can impress on our hearts where to pursue God's leading for our church. And we hope that very, very soon, at the latest um, start of term three, latest, we'll meet together in person, maybe before then, God willing. All right. So um, we'll keep you updated with that. In closing, my final slide, echoing the words where it says, verse 7, Jesus to the church in Ephesus, Whoever has ears, whoever, that means me and you today, let them hear what God's Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious. To the one who fixed the drift. The one who stayed faithful in spite of pressures. The one who stuck with God. I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So there's this promise of reward beyond this life. The end result of being in Christ it's always blessing and reward that echoes into eternity. Amen and amen. Let me pray for us. Father God, we, we think on this word today that told us that we are to love you first. And all of us can say that there has been times when personally our love for you had cooled down. Forgive us for those things. And may your spirit move in our hearts so that we would love you first, that we would love you most, that we would prioritize you in our hearts. We don't want to become more religious, Lord. We just want to love you deeper and more faithfully. And may that be the collective position of our congregation, that as a church, we would love you and that we'd honor you in the way that we win people, where we build people and send people into the world around us. So help us, God. We pray this in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. 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 We're gonna.